0: Thank you. Hi, Risto Martin in here. Episode six is with Dr. Erin Santeo. She's an assistant professor at the University of Hawaii. I will let that location set in for you all. We actually did this podcast at 3.30 a.m. her time, her request, not mine, uh, because that is when she had the time available to do this before her kids got up. So. Uh, Up until the summer, she was at Wayne State University, where the project we are talking about today was developed and conducted. Uh, This paper was published in Preventative Medicine, which is a really tough journal to get your work published in, and shows the rigor of this research. In this podcast, we talk about how a comprehensive school health program was able to significantly reduce obesity levels in elementary youth. Uh, Dr. Senteo is also a co-host of our podcast, and you will hear her interviewing other authors during some of our future podcasts. But for now, here she is breaking down the article. So we're here with Dr. Aaron Senteo from the University of Hawaii. Uh, we're discussing an article titled Building Healthy Communities, a Comprehensive School Health Program to Prevent Obesity in Elementary Schools. was published in 2018 in preventative medicine so welcome and congratulations on publishing in such a prestigious journal
1: oh thanks so much risto i'm really excited to be here and really excited to share our research with you today um i want to thank and acknowledge my co-authors to start out they all work in the center for health and community impact here Um, at Wayne State University. And um, I also wanna acknowledge our funders that really helped make this project possible, which includes Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, the United Dairy Industry of Michigan, as well as some sponsors, including Food Corps and Gopher Sports. So thanks again for inviting us to be here.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So let's get into the article. Can you give me a bit of a background on the comprehensive school health model and what it is?
1: Yeah, so um, comprehensive school health dates back to around the 1960s and a little bit before that. But the most recent version is called whole school, whole community, whole child. And this model really has 10 components, and two of these components specifically call out physical education and physical activity, as well as nutrition. And I'm not sure that we have time to really get into it here, um, but I'm gonna do a separate podcast that really talks about the supporting theoretical framework of these comprehensive models. So there's a lot. A lot of literature and theory supports this concept of comprehensive programming. And in this study, we specifically um, focused on both the knowledge and behavior of youth in regards to physical activity and healthy eating.
0: Great. So how is this model supposed to work for schools and th- then just better than just adding more PE or physical activity?
1: So the idea of a comprehensive whole of school approach is that by intervening in multiple areas of the school day with knowledge and opportunities to eat healthy and to be physically active, you're going to be able to create a culture around physical activity and healthy eating. So with multiple exposures of the students, it'll hopefully allow for the students to essentially make real change in their life. The idea is that not one thing that they do in physical education, um, but instead it really becomes this culture of the school that's going to focus on healthy eating and physical activity habits of youth.
0: Great. So what what kind of led you to doing this study? And it's a it's a really rigorous study. And kind of can you discuss what you were trying to find out with uh, with your research?
1: You know, given all the negative statistics focusing around the inactivity and obesity of youth, especially in underserved areas and with students of color, Our group is really passionate about about making change. And so really trying to intervene at the school level to help provide physical activity and healthy eating opportunities in order to change the culture within the school was our goal. Um, We've hoped that by creating prevention programming, it'll eventually um, lead to essentially helping subside the huge obesity epidemic in the U.S.,
0: um, so this was quite a rigorous study, and let's kind of try to break that down in this, in this talk. So you did it over eight months. You had an intervention. Uh, can you describe the program first?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the program is really focused on six main components. Um, there's principal engagement, classroom engagement, unhealthy eating and physical activity, quality physical education, active recess student leadership team, and then what we call the healthy kids club. So the principal engagement components really focus on um, principals supporting policy systems and environmental changes within their school. So we give them things called healthy tips of the day that they read um, in the morning as kind of healthy announcements, but then also their job is to distribute Um, newsletters to parents, make sure that healthy messages are posted throughout the school and just support the overall program in general. Classroom engagement is a second component of the Building Healthy Communities model. So within classroom engagement, we encourage classroom teachers to integrate physical activity and healthy eating lessons throughout their normal classroom routines. So Classroom teachers are given resources to implement physical activity breaks as well as professional developments, and they're encouraged to um, conduct physical activity breaks throughout the school day at least once a day in their classroom. Additionally, there are six healthy eating lessons that classroom teachers are encouraged to conduct throughout the year. And this is um, really based on a model where our program coordinators within the Building Healthy Communities model go into the classroom and they teach the first healthy eating lesson. And then the classroom teacher is there to observe how it's taught, and the classroom teacher essentially then teaches a second lesson. Then our coordinator really um, goes in and teaches a third lesson, and it becomes this, like, mentor model, where eventually the classroom teacher is teaching all of these healthy eating lessons. It was really important to us in the design of this program that we are – Um, modeling and also creating um, sustained change. And so teaching the classroom teachers how to essentially teach those healthy eating lessons was really important to us. So also within classroom engagement, there's this concept of um, sending materials home to the parents and parent messaging. And so we encourage the classroom teachers to send messaging home to their parents um, through newsletters and whatnot within the classroom. The third component is quality physical education. So within this um, part, uh, the physical education teachers received a curriculum called the Exemplary Physical Education Curriculum. It is an evidence-based curriculum that is focused on the national and state standards. And um, the teachers not only got professional development around how to teach the EPIC curriculum, but they also received physical activity equipment that was necessary to teach it. Uh, The coordinators went in and observed to make sure that uh, teachers were teaching EPIC, and they observed about um, twice a month to ensure fidelity uh, within the program. The fourth component of the program is called active recess. And this really just focuses on the idea that um, if you give students equipment, And space in order to be physically active, then they're going to be more physically active than if you just let them roam. Um, We provided what we would call um, physical activity games and cards to help facilitate active recess. We encouraged the physical education teacher to teach the kids um, these games uh, so that they could participate in these games at recess. And then we also provided them again with a lot of equipment that was specifically designated for recess so that the kids would be able to use playground balls, basketballs, soccer balls to be physically active during that time and at recess. Um, we also did some training with the classroom teachers and monitor recess monitors um, to talk about indoor recess and what indoor recess should look like and make sure that indoor recess was also active because this study took place um, in the Midwest and so Uh, We know that weather is not always great in the Midwest and so that that component of indoor recess was also really important. The next component um, was student leadership team and this was really based around um, fuel up to play 60. And so this idea is is that a leadership team of students is, is formed at the school and they essentially do an assessment of the school environment. And then they pick a physical activity and a healthy eating play uh, that they think is important. And by they, I mean the students. And so it's really the students taking ownership of the healthy eating and physical activity environment in the school. And then um, coming up with their administration and with their school leader ideas of how they might be able to change um these ideas uh, within the school environment and so you see um, kids hosting like taste tests of vegetables and healthy eating and then trying to get some of those more healthy foods into their cafeteria or hosting events such as a fun run that would be something that they could work up towards um, and implement in their school uh, in years to come and then the final component of the program Uh, is Healthy Kids Club, and the Healthy Kids Club is really an after-school club that's focused on all-inclusive physical activity, and so the idea of the Healthy Kids Club is for kids to come after school, for it not to be limited, and for the kids to get a healthy snack, engage in an initial like walking or running club within the program, so that's about 20 minutes of the program, and then to engage in interactive, moderate to vigorous physical activity physical activities and games. So not thinking about competitive games, but really looking at non-competitive activities where kids are having fun uh, within this after-school program. So those are essentially the six components that really make up this um, Building Healthy Communities program.
0: So I think that's a really great overall description of what that you know, comprehensive school health model could look like in practice. Um, now, who were the participants in this study?
1: So we had six schools total that participated in the study, and four of those schools actually participated in the intervention. So they participated in the Building Healthy Community Program. And then we had two schools that we um consider comparison schools. So those schools were actually waitlisted, meaning they did not participate in the program the year that we collected data. And then they were granted the program the following year so that their students could also experience the intervention. Within the six schools, we had 628 total fifth grade students that participated in the study. And 377 of those um, students were in the intervention schools, uh, whereas the rest of them um, were within the comparison schools.
0: Great. And so you measured obesity levels and you were trying to find out if there was a significant difference or a significant decrease as a result of the intervention. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we really wanted to know if this comprehensive program, Building Healthy Communities, has an impact on children's obesity levels and what that impact was.
0: So what did you find? Uh, Can you kind of list some of your key results from the research?
1: We found that students who were attending the schools engaged in the Building Healthy Communities intervention, regardless of their race, age, and self-identified sex, significantly decreased their BMI and their waist-to-height ratio. And that's compared to those students who did not participate in the intervention. Then we also looked at if youth jumped categories within BMI. So we know that BMI is kind of categorized as normal, uh, underweight, normal, uh, overweight, and obese, and then severely obese. And we wanted to know if students um, like moved in between these categories. And what we found was within this sample, there was not sig- any significant Um, jumps within categories. So we didn't see students move from underweight to normal or from obese to overweight as far as significant differences among the treatment and control groups.
0: So some of this project kind of confirms some of the findings from other studies that looked at this comprehensive school-wide intervention. Um, Can you share an overview of how this relates to previous research that's been done in this similar field?
1: So this study showed a decreasing incidence and prevalence of obesity in our fifth-grade sample of students, and the results really show the potential of a multi-component comprehensive physical activity and healthy eating intervention and how that can positively alter the school environment and, um, you know, students' health status. In other studies, we've seen that there's been positive impacts of these comprehensive interventions on physical activity, on eating behaviors, and there's been some programs that have shown decrease in obesity, but there's not many. They're kind of far and few between. There was a study recently done in 2017 by a research group at the University of Utah led by Dr. Burns, but in that study, they really didn't find a decrease in the waist circumference or obesity. So, this is really one of the first studies that's looking at this comprehensive um, school model that found this decrease in obesity, which is really exciting.
0: Yeah, and I think it is really an exciting result. And you talk about BMI a little bit differently in this in this study, and I think most listeners will be familiar with BMI. But you talk about waist-to-height ratio and how that could help the field. Can you kind of describe what that is and how that looks in research?
1: So although BMI is most commonly used as a measure for obesity, both within youth and in adults, there are really a lot of limitations to BMI. So when we think about BMI, it really measures excess body weight and not necessarily body fat. So there's influencers such as age, sex, ethnicity, and muscle mass that can influence this relationship between body weight and body fat. And those things are sometimes hard to account for. So one of the great things about waist to height ratio is that it's such an easy um, measurement to obtain or collect from youth and adults and then essentially, you don't have to take into account any of those um, things that I mentioned above. So age, sex, ethnicity, it doesn't, it doesn't look at any of those. So there's no um, comparison charts. It's really this cut level of, is your ratio above or below 0.5? If you're above 0.5, you're considered at risk for obesity. And if you're below 0.5, you're not. And so this concept really works for all bodies, both adult and children, and it doesn't really deal with some of the other factors that are considered problematic when considering BMI.
0: Yeah, thanks for the explanation. And I think for those uh, that are following along with the paper, uh, you talk about obesity prevention, which is in section 5.2, and you state in that paper that quote, during a time when BMI usually increases and at best stays the same, showing a slight decrease is noteworthy. What do you mean by that statement?
1: Well, if you think about BMI percentile charts that are published by different organizations like the World Health Organization or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, you see that these charts are curves that increase with age. So as a child ages, we would expect because of growth and maturation that their BMI is going to increase slightly to a certain point. And then as you edge into adulthood, you would expect to see these numbers level off. So simply what that statement is saying is that sometimes we see these, you know, we sh- we should see because of growth and maturation that BMI is going to increase. Um, or at best, it might stay the same at that particular age within that upper elementary school. And show. so being able to show this slight decrease is really n- noteworthy in that, we wouldn't necessarily expect to see that at that age group without some type of an intervention.
0: Now, how sustainable are these programs? And, you know, you show that this specific program had success, so why isn't everyone jumping on board?
1: I'm going to be honest with you, these programs are not for everyone. The concept behind the Building Healthy Communities program is really to help schools build a culture around health and physical activity. The Building Healthy Communities team is heavily involved in the first year programming to get the components up and running at the school and make sure that we're really working with the school closely to help them build capacity for sustainable change. The idea is that this culture is created and the culture is sustainable once the funding period is over. However, we found that principal support is really key to success of these comprehensive programs. Without principal's support, it's really hard to create this real change of culture within the school. So the principal definitely has to be on board. The other thing that you really need to realize is that it does take the whole school to make change. So if one or two teachers are making change, but the rest of the environment is not changing, students aren't going to be able to get the same benefits that they would if you see this whole culture of school change. So I would say that in today's day and age, most schools are focused on one thing, and that's to increase academic achievement. Although we know that there's a lot of literature out there that links physical activity, fitness, and healthy eating to higher achievement of youth, the reality is is that schools have to take a leap of faith to give up programming time to prioritize health within their buildings. And I would say that this is one of the main reasons that schools are a little bit hesitant to jump on board because it's hard to reconceptualize a school day around health, especially since there's so much pressure for achievement among youth.
0: Yeah, I love what you're saying about the whole culture change of the whole school needs to happen. And I think a lot of our um, practicing physical education teachers and health teachers can really understand that you do have to have that principal support. Um, So when we talk about research, we always have some limitations. And, um, you know, doing this podcast in, in the conversational kind of type we we don't always allow to be super specific with our language as you would in that peer-reviewed journal article and uh, i think sometimes we we might and meaning me and the author speaking about the paper's We may say things like uh, students who participate in school-wide programs may have a lower body fat percentage at the end, whereas we know that the study looks specifically at students in only uh, the schools you studied uh, in in the Midwest. So um, I'll use this opportunity to address that point since you have a great limitation sections in the paper. So can you kind of describe to us some of the limitations you had and why this data is still valuable despite those limitations?
1: We know that this is a sample of fifth graders in one specific part of the U.S. So generalizability is really hard to assume. There needs to be more research conducted with these comprehensive programs to help ensure that this type of change will occur in other populations, in other states, in other parts of the U.S. and across the world, you know, internationally. I think another limitation of this study was the availability for follow-up. So unfortunately, we weren't able to follow up with these students to see if they maintained this reduction of obesity over time, nor were we able to follow up with the schools to determine the level at which they were able to sustain the Building Healthy Community Program after the funding period it had ended. So I think that I would encourage other researchers and other um, practitioners to make sure that you you do follow up because we know that in order to measure this sustainable change, we need, we need to be able to measure it and then be able to know what actually the lasting effects are um, from programs like this and what effect that has on child obesity in the school environment long term. The last thing um, that I wanted to just mention was that You know, we did a great job within this study of tracking fidelity within the schools that participated within the Building Healthy Communities intervention, but we didn't really intensively track curriculum and anything else that was going on within the comparison schools. So, one of the things that I would suggest for future interventions is to track fidelity in both the treatment and control schools in order to get a better understanding of the context and maybe help explain results. Um, within the comparison schools. So knowing a little bit more about what's going on in those comparison schools during the time of the intervention might be helpful. So although we have all of these limitations, I think understanding how to utilize the time that we have in schools to increase students' knowledge and opportunities for healthy eating and physical activity is so important. We know that our youth in the U.S. are inactive and obese and finding ways to improve or reverse this is really important. And also to find ways to prevent um, this from happening in the future is imperative.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. And I think one of the one of the great things about this is to see that, you know, these different organizations and funders are able to fund things like this in physical activity and physical education. So it's really uh, nice to see. Um, So do you have any final words on the project?
1: You know, I just first want to thank you so much for inviting us to share our work with you. Um, We love being able to talk about the Building Healthy Community Program and other programs that we're involved in. So thank you so much for inviting us on and just a uh, second shout out to our funders, because again, without them um, and for their dedication for school health and for kids' health, uh, we wouldn't be able to do this work in school. So we're very grateful for them.
0: Great. So. I appreciate your time as well. Uh, for those of you who want to read the full article by Dr. Centeo and the other co-authors, you can find it in the Preventative Medicine uh, journal published in 2018. And we'll put the notes down into the description of the podcast episode. And that's all we have for you on this one. And thanks for listening.